0: Hello, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, where I speak to bands and artists about how they've been able to survive, the different jobs they've got between making records and going on tour. And on today's episode, Big Joni, Chardine, Estella and Steph speak to me about what they've done throughout their nine years being a band ahead of their new album, Back Home, which is coming out on the 4th of November. 2000 Trees Festival supports this episode. Happening in Cheltenham, a few hours away from London, in July 2023, they've got rival schools headlining. If you're looking for an independent rock festival to go to next year, 2000 Trees is the one. You can get cheaper tickets now at 2000treesfestival.co.uk. All right, here's Big Joni, a 101 part time jobs. Go well. Cheers. Battling work with art, there's there's a real dichotomy between those two things. From your time playing in music and and doing art at large, are there any kind of particular moments or or times or jobs that have been, you know, good for it or, or bad for it? Well, I think yeah, like working in
2: a music venue has always been good for it, um just because like a your bosses sort of like understand if you're like oh I need to like go on tour or go and play this like random festival somewhere um so they have that kind of tend to maybe be a bit more flexible and understanding than like so when I've had like admin office jobs in the past or whatever so that's been handy and then yeah obviously working in a record store now it's like the same thing so it's kind of not that difficult to get the time off to go and be creative like if anything, it's Actively encouraged, so I've been quite lucky in that way.
0: That's great. And Third Man Records, Big Joni have, have done stuff with the record label, and that that must be nice, where you don't have to see band and daytime work separately.
2: Yeah, it's cool to be able to like um we well, we sold out of the Big Joni single now, but um, yeah, so it was cool to be able to like chat to people about that, um, and when they came in. And then obviously we, um, Big Joni, have actually played the Blue Basement and the little venue at Third Man as well and things. So it's been cool to be able, yeah, to like merge a little in that way.
0: Living in a place where there are record stores and there are venues that you can work at. All of that stuff has such an impact on on how you do your art, right? How you can be a band.
3: It was lucky that we kind of started the band in London, I think, because... There's so many opportunities to do to kind of to do what you want to do, really, and to kind of find your people and find your community. Um, just because of the amount of people that are in the city, and you know, again, you know, there's so many record stores and different venues uh, and different spaces and bars and clubs where you can kind of create your own world. And um, it's, yeah, it's definitely kind of a world that can only exist. The big journey world could only existed in in London when we started at that time. At first-timers at DIY Space? Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of um, nine years ago now, I think, <laughs> which is a long time.
0: <laughs> do, you, do you remember walking into DIY Space for London for the first time and like remembering how you felt?
3: Yeah, I remember exactly when I first saw DIY Space. I think I was there at the opening night because there used to be loads of gigs at Power Lunches, which was like the main DIY venue in L- London, um, but then DIY Space opened up. Um, and I remember it kind of, I feel like it only just, they'd only just stopped building it, like it smelled like sawdust, and <laughs> it smelled like, it, it kind of looked like it was only just been finished. Um, and I feel like Priest played, oh, you you worked at a DIY Space for a bit, didn't you, Stella?
2: Yeah, so it was mainly like volunteers and stuff, so... Um sound workers so sound engineers did get a rate for their shifts although some people also would volunteer like free time for like charity events or yeah fundraisers for the space and stuff but um I know a lot of people did use like the bar experiences then sort of leverage that to get bar work elsewhere and stuff so it was good for like getting yeah just like being able to Learn new skills and meet new people, I guess, as well, and then take those skills on to elsewhere. Even though it didn't really feel like that's why we were doing it at the time, but it did prove useful.
0: And Shardeen, you've been quite active in organising events, haven't you?
4: Yeah, that's right. No, um, so far done in the past, is, um, it's mostly sort of activist protest stuff. Um, So Black Girls Picnic, um, Reclaim Brixton, um, Black British Women's um, Conference, Feminist Conference, so more things like that, really.
0: How did that start? How did you get into that? And what was the first thing you were involved in?
4: I mean, I've been politically organising since I was about 17. So... um, I don't know, you just sort of know how to to do things, really. I mean, most things usually come from seeing, like, a need that needs to be sort of filled. So, I mean, Black Girls Picnic was a response to... um, Actually, I can't even remember what was the initial... what the response was, actually. I think it was watching a Beyoncé video and just thinking it would be cool to have, like, a sort of cool chill-out space for black women that was easy to do and for other people to kind of copy. Um, So it's about sort of bringing activism and organizing and creating a space that was accessible to as many people as possible. When it comes to organizing things, people think that it's actually really complicated and really hard and it's really sort of labor intensive and it can be, but there are things that you can do Um, I guess it's that sort of, you know, punk approach, really, where it doesn't have to be like that. And you can actually make something happen, but it's about working with other people. Um, Whereas I think that people feel like they need to be like the CEO of whatever it is that they're doing. It's just the reality of having to do things and um, trying to survive in this capitalist society. You have to have a day job, otherwise you can't do the other thing so I mean that's why like you know managing burnout and just making sure you have time where you're sort of you know looking after yourself and doing things which aren't sort of about putting labor out into the world is a a good thing I mean if you want to call it self-care you can but you know I think part of Black Girls Picnic as well was about trying to do that because You know, often there's a lot of statistics, particularly around um, Black women activists dying young, really, from illnesses just because people have just been wearing their bodies and their minds out from doing all the work that they do.
0: How have you been able to to manage that yourself? Has it been a case of, you know, allocating certain amounts of time to thinking and and organising?
4: I think you need to try and be quite strict. I mean, I think, to be honest, as women... You know, we're taught not to speak for what we need or what we want, and so we're socialized to be pleasers, basically. So you know, we're there to care for other people, we're there to do things for other people rather than what our, ourselves. And you see it all the time in you know domestic situations where women will take on most of the you know labor in the home. And see that uh, you know when they could be you know depressed or whatever it is, and they'll still be doing that because that's the thing that we are taught that gives women value in society. So it's to be able to sort of flip that round and be like, no, I'm not going to do something. Oh, frankly, any woman saying no to something is actually a powerful thing because we're constantly told to be saying yes, and that is what gives us value. So um, I think, you know, it's sort of retraining myself or ourselves to be able to do that. And that is a feminist statement in itself and a feminist action in itself to do that.
0: Steph, you're a journalist and an author, getting into writing and, you know, being able to, to set aside time to, to write and then be able to, to pitch those ideas. My mum's uh, an author and, and was a magazine journalist and, and brought us kids up being a sort of a freelancer. And and even now, I'll give her a call and she'll be teaching on the side, teaching creative writing, which is, I think, sounds like um, a lot of writers do. What's your story been in in being able to prioritise writing and, you know, and, ma- and make a success of, of yourself doing it?
3: Writing is a very precarious job, unfortunately. Um... The industry is kind of was small when I got started in it about uh ten over ten years ago and now it's kind of even more small <laughs> and there's kind of less kind of stability and jobs in it so at the moment I'm freelance, which makes more sense for me and for the band and you know means I can kind of work for one week at home writing and you know go away with the band another week and kind of ma- manage to balance it but um yeah, I think it's kind of been a balance of, you know, I trained as a journalist at university and got my NCTJ and then graduated into the recession in 2009. So um, it took a while to actually find a job and to get into the industry. But it was kind of mainly through doing work that people wouldn't necessarily think about. So writing for B2B magazines and writing about packaging and airports and very random things (laughs) but um, that was my first um, kind of proper writing job in the kind of um, journalism industry and then I moved on to kind of working for a charity um, as a content writer and kind of writing things for young people, advice columns and different things like that Um, and then I Got made redundant <laughs> after two years and um, just as we were like recording our first album so um i decided to go freelance and it's been a bit up and down and a bit bumpy but yeah you just kind of have to kind of figure out what you're going to do next really <laughs> how
0: how do you respond to that sort of feeling of of get you know getting that first job and then in that, that maybe fallow period of of a few weeks or however long it might be
3: I think that it was more than a few weeks when I was working. For, yeah, it was a long time. Yeah, it was like ages. And I was working as a, um, like, you know, those samplers at supermarkets. I worked for Gale's Bakery um, and I had to go to different Waitrose's around London and cut up the bread and then sample it and give it to different people and try and get them to buy this Gale's bread.
0: Yes, that's my kind of job
3: it was awful though you don't want you don't want to do that job it was poorly paid (laughs) they didn't pay for lunch and then and I was on my feet all day it was so it was so boring the only upside is I wrote one of our early songs while I was like on my shift (laughs) staring at the clock which one is that which song is that I wrote a bit of eyes when I was on a shift and I wrote a bit of damage which was from our first EP while I was on a shift as well Great. I was just daydreaming, holding a plate of bread. Um, but yeah, so while I was kind of doing that terrible job and working like seven days a week, I was at college. And then afterwards, after I graduated college, I think it took me six months to get a, a staff job. It was a long time.
0: Have you three got quite good at the sort of communication workflow and, and that kind of, uh, you know, balancing out the duties and, and, and making it sort of manageable?
4: I mean, you just, it. there's no, you know, it's not like back in the days where you'd have, I mean, we, we have management now, which is fantastic, and that really does help a lot because it filters through. But, um, you know, music isn't in the same way anymore. So it was quite interesting. I hosted a um, conversation with Tim Burgess like on Friday. And um, obviously, you know, the charlatans were a big bands but out of those like 90s bands they weren't the biggest you know what I mean but like you know people were able to make money then you could sell like a 100,000 like physical records cd and vinyl tape and you know that would be money in the pocket of a musician whereas now I reckon a band of that size I mean obviously that's still bigger than ours but like that That's The equivalent of that band now would not be making the same amount of money. They probably would still be working. And I remember having a conversation of idols about it, actually, when we were on tour of them. I mean, obviously, they're huge now and, you know, they don't need to work. But they only left their day jobs, like, two years ago, maybe around Drove right. Resistance. Right. Ultra-mon- actually, I think it's Ultra Mono. They said they were actually able to leave their day jobs and their entirety so it just um you know it's you just got to sort of like try and manage it whilst you can because we don't really have any other option really yeah I mean I wonder if it
0: requires you know a good sense of humor to, to be able to be like yeah fuck it you know we're gonna we gotta try
3: yeah I mean I guess it does make you feel a lot more dedicated to it because you know, you you know, you're only doing this because you really, you really, really believe it and you really care about it. Um, And yeah, I guess that's my kind of take on seeing kind of bands out today. I don't feel like music is a money making um, endeavour like it used to be. So I'd hope there's less people that are kind of cynically in it for just, a quick book or something like that but maybe there is maybe there's still a few people like that
0: (laughs) well I wonder if those people are the people working in the
4: industry the best person to be in the music industry is not the musician (laughs) basically you can be anything else do you want to actually like make a living be anything else except for the person that actually makes the music and you'll be fine (laughs) I'm
0: on uh, Twitter quite a lot and, and reading about sort of PRs. I mean, obviously, Twitter is such a great tool for PRs. And mm-hmm. it's interesting following, following so many people there and, you know, seeing people let off steam about the industry or, you know, telling th- their stories from their, from their own experiences. And, you know, the highs are high and the lows are so low. And, you know, I wonder if that's quite industry wide, you know, an industry built on the foundation of popularity. It's quite like a funny juxtaposition, really, I think,
3: yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's hard to predict what's gonna be the the kind of winning song of the month and what will fail, um so you can put a lot of <laughs> a lot of effort into something that might not work out for you in the long run. Um, but yeah, I mean, and also I guess kind of what is a success is depends on who you are in the industry, and what a musician would see as successful is very different to what a manager or a PR or the label would see it as
0: with streaming being sort of the first you know the primary you know I love records but I'm still going to find when you release a single on that Tuesday morning the first place I'm going to go to is Spotify I'm probably not going to necessarily wait until I buy the physical thing to hear it for the first time how do you feel about I suppose streaming is something that none of us are going to change too big now but, you know, when when you've talked about it with management and label, what kind of conversations have, have you had there?
2: I guess for me, it seems like the way like management and labels think about it, it's all kind of just like part of the way you build up to the physical release now. So even though, I mean, when we went into the studio, we were very much thinking about making an album, um, like a unified body of work as opposed to individual singles so they're like deciding what would be released as singles came after we would put the album together we're sort of releasing the singles and the videos and hoping that that gets people excited for the album release and the tour but i guess uh, for a lot of artists well i don't know if it's a lot but sometimes for other artists like they seem very singles focused and less album focused
0: it was Happier Still that came up before In My Arms, wasn't it? Yeah. Releasing Happier Still, would, did that feel like a a right first single to put out by itself?
2: I think so. Yeah. I think just because uh, the overarching feeling with the album, the new one, the second one, is that it's um, bigger. And I think Happier Still introduces that in quite a good way. Like there's, there's two guitars on it. It's like a very... Just kind of like, oh hey, like we're here. Sort of sounds for it. I think. I think it's a good one.
3: It Kind of threads back to kind of our first album away. Kind of, it's a good bridge between the two sounds. So it kind of can lead people into the the bigger big Joni sound.
0: It's really fun sounding.
3: <laughs> it is fun. I mean, we try and be fun. If we can be anything, we'll be fun.
0: <laughs> Single, tour, gigs all this going on it kind of splashes all at once
3: yeah there's a lot going on
0: (laughs) how do you sort of get used to being behind the scenes making the album doing doing everything with ecstatic peace library thurston moore so cool and all that stuff kind of coming into into like real world real life stuff going places getting in the van
2: i guess like uh, probably just don't make enough time to uh Sit and absorb what's actually happening because there's always so much going on that you're kind of like, oh okay, well, we've just put out the third single, but now we've got to go make the video for the fourth single, and then that's going to come out, and then we're going to go on tour, and then we're going to do some dates with Courtney Barnett, and then we're going to do this other stuff, and so it's kind of like the machine's always going. We're always thinking of what we're going to do next, or like planning for the future because everything has to be planned so far in advance, like any tours or anything, and even just like planning around our jobs that we've talked about as well. So it's always like the things that people see happening in the present, that might've been planned like six months to a year beforehand, like especially with like vinyl delays now and stuff. So already thinking about the next thing, but um, I don't know if that's the healthiest approach.
3: It's funny to kind of be in the middle of an album proper release because we didn't really do it properly for the first album with everything so now it kind of we're seeing like what it's actually like and yeah the machine's always running but it's also like always there's always things that are like delayed and always things that kind of rushed and there's just like 20,000 things happening at the same time it's just kind of funny to kind of watch that from within
0: (laughs) Does it require a lot, a lot of patience and a lot of, uh, you know, when you, 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 something's about to happen? You know, this song's going to go out, that thing's going to be pressed, and then it's like, oh no, it can't happen. Uh, turn around, do something completely different. Are you quite good at being able to sort of roll with that?
3: It's good to kind of know that we're working with a good team because you know, if things do go wrong, um, someone will immediately pick it up generally and kind of work it out for us. So you can just kind of see the emails and then figure out that someone's someone's figured it out <laughs> um, and that is kind of really nice to see that kind of you know there's a lot going on but then also we don't have to manage all of it.
2: Yeah I was going to say now that we're working with um, Bella Union as our managers um, that's definitely helped um, in kind of just getting everything in order really and sorting out all that back of house stuff and you know, some of the things that you don't really even know that you're going to have to do when you first decide to start a band with your friends or whatever, like you don't realise, you don't expect there to be just like layers and layers of admin later down the line. So it's good to be able to work with people who obviously have so much experience in the industry and can give guidance and yeah, help if we need to make a plan B or a plan C because of something, whatever that's like happened. So um yeah, we've, it's definitely really helped working with them.
0: People with experience with independent music. I mean, Simon Raymond from Cocteau Twins, Thurston Moore. I mean, that, that that's there's two two very cool names to look you know to look up to and to study. I suppose. Do you get many younger people asking how you do it or or asking for advice? What points would you give you know a young person listening to this asking on you know asking about how to operate? As a band,
3: yeah, it's interesting. I think we definitely get a lot of young people asking us, but I, sometimes I'm worried about giving the real answer because I feel like they want like a clear cut way of doing it, um, and they don't really realize, you know, we've been in a band for nine years and we probably went the long way or the wrong way, one or the other. <laughs> um, I mean, my main advice to young people would who want to get in a band and want to actually create something that they care about is to find their community. I mean, there's so many different music scenes out there. There'll be a place for them where they can kind of be appreciated and be inspired. And that's kind of the, the first thing that you need to do. Everything else will kind of fall in place, I think, with kind of the way that things are today and how easy it is to find new music and new scenes. Um, someone will find you if you're good enough, but you need to kind of like have the community and have the education and kind of just take the time to grow.
0: Are there any sort of particular festivals or gigs touring with Courtney Barnett? That's very exciting.
2: Yeah, we really can't wait for that, I think. Um, we, like, you know, like bumped into her at Glasgow. She came and watched our set and stuff because we were on the same stage. So She was headlining the park stage. Um, and, yeah, it was really, just really cool to, you know, have her say that she'd been, like waiting to see us and really excited to see us for all that time and like yeah just glad to finally get to actually play some shows together obviously she's a phenomenal guitarist and then she has such a huge back catalogue as well and um is another person who's you know contributing back into the music scene with um like you know the milk records um down in australia and stuff so, yeah, really excited to play those shows together. And then we'll also both be at Pitchfork London. Um, and so, yeah, it's the first, like, Pitchfork-related festival we've done. And they obviously, like, reviewed the first album, Sisters and stuff. So, yeah, it's quite exciting to know that we're on their radar and hopefully going to be put in front of even more people who maybe haven't heard of us, but will hopefully sort of be into what we're about.
1: 100, 100, 100 jobs,
0: 100.
2: I was like signed up with like an agency when I lived in York for a bit. there was one day where literally like the job was going to this big kind of like truck thing that they parked in the center of um, the center of town. So literally the center of York, literally we had to, we had all these like cupcakes and we had to just convince people to come onto this like truck or bus, taste these cupcakes and then like give us the feedback. But then obviously we also had to eat the cupcakes every morning. So I just can't (laughs) believe I got paid to literally eat cake for like (laughs) pre-dose. You
3: had to lure people onto a bus with cake?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) to be like, do you want some free cake? And usually they're like, yeah. So that was maybe one of the most random jobs I had.
4: I mean, when I used to work in McDonald's, that was like my one of my first jobs when I was younger in my hometown. Like, and I won um, employee of the year, (laughs) yes, which was quite funny.
1: For um, Ah.
4: the one section, which was the fillet and pie, so that used to be my section. So doing all the um, the chicken nuggets and the the veggie burgers and stuff, and I had a whole system running, and I was the only person that could run that section. <laughs> 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 but it was quite funny because at the time, like it was, ba- it was like the best paid job you could get if you were under 18 in my town. Because before that, I had like a waitress job, and it was like two pounds an hour. And I remember the McDonald's job was £6 an hour. Hey, rolling in it. And um, yeah, I did three shifts a week. But it was a bit like working in a youth club because everyone was like really young. So it was quite fun at the time. Yeah.
0: I mean, you, you go to McDonald's to have fun as a teenager <laughs> at the school's out time at about like quarter past four, 4.30. That's a fun place to be.
4: Yeah, I mean working there, it was just yeah. you know, when we used to shut up the um shop and be cleaning, we just used to put loads of music on and like just be silly and sort of have a laugh now. I don't know where that that, that trophy's gone. Maybe my mum's got it somewhere, I don't know.
0: Employee of the year. That's nothing to sniff at. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive.
2: <laughs> Not even just a month, you know, the yeah. years. <laughs>
3: All my jobs were kind of weird in so many different ways, but I think, yeah, I think the Gales one was the weirdest. There was a lot of anecdotes of just seeing lots of random celebrities because I had to go to Waitroses like, around um, London. And so once I saw Noel Gallagher in two separate Waitroses in two days and every time I offered him bread, he said no, and I've always resented him for it since I was a... <laughs> But Yeah, I used to see mm. loads of celebrities. They're all they're all all hanging around the um, Kensington Street wait- waitrose. <laughs> saw Beverly Knight. Um, saw uh, what's the name from EastEnders, Babs. Yeah, I saw loads of people. But yeah, Noel Gallagher was the one that I can vividly remember. I can remember his face when he said no.
0: He's, he's got oh. quite like a piercing frown, doesn't he?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, it wasn't. It was. It was still frowny, but a bit more kind of like trying to kind of pass through you know normal life he wasn't trying to kind of stop you know start any arguments
0: those are three amazing stories so thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us yeah <laughs>
2: thanks for having us it's been well fun thank you
0: <laughs> so there was Big Joni on 101 part-time jobs their new album Back Home is out on the 4th of November see you next week for a new episode here's Cox Barrow I've
1: been working all day right on the side running around blue eyes I've been working, yeah, I've been working on diet for me, mighty. Every big me, I've been on the go. Up and down the ladder like a friendless hell I've been working, yeah, I've been working on diet for me, mighty.
0: This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast.